This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Coolman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are here uh, live every Thursday from... 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific for those of you driving. And then we're also replayed throughout the week. So we give you plenty of options to to listen to us. Absolutely. Our guest joining us in studio is Claudine Gartenberg, Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School. And we always love to have faculty from Wharton and elsewhere on because when we're thinking about social impact and when we're trying to to think about what new things are developing, developing in the world, it's really great to have research underpinning our discussions, right? To really sort of say, here's what the survey shows, here's what the data shows, because that really means that we're getting beyond the anecdotes into something that's really substantive. So that's you know one of our favorite things, right? And one you know when it comes to our show, and then I think our industry, there's a lot of innovation happening, but therefore a lot of the proof points are anecdotal, as you mentioned. Yes. So yes. having a stronger evidence base, um, you know. We're more about objectivity here, both on dollars and change, but especially at the Wharton School. So we're not trying to be advocates, nope, <laughs> but nope. rather just share what the data show. Exactly, exactly. Let's welcome our guest, Claudine. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. So tell us a little bit about your work at Wharton. Sure. So from a from a teaching side, I teach uh, the core strategy class mm-hmm. that is given to uh, most of the first year MBAs and also a second year class on implementation, strategy implementation. And that ties into the research that I do. So I do research on what's called corporate and organizational strategy. And what those fields ask is two big questions. One is, what business should I be in in the first place? And then the second question is, how do I organize to be successful in those businesses? Is that sort of I mean, you talk about corporations, but when you say that, I'm actually struck to think of, of myself as an entrepreneur or something and like, okay, what am I trying to promote and then how do I organize? So how do you think about that? those different levels, sort of the startup or entrepreneurial level, but then also the big corporate level? Right. So corporate is just a general word for you're an entity. And every business has this question. What businesses should I be in? If you're a small company, it should be, you know, do I you know, offer the product directly to consumers? Do I offer it as a service to other businesses? That type of corporate strategy question is faced by nearly every entrepreneur in understanding what their go-to-market strategy is. And then you get the big questions like GE, these big companies that have to understand, do I vertically integrate? How far should my horizontal businesses be? And that's also corporate strategy. So corporate strategy sounds like we're talking about these big behemoths from, you know, mid-century, but it's a question that every manager needs to ask. Yeah, and we also do with it in, in our own organization as well, right? You know, what is our strategy? How are we going to staff for that? How do we build the culture around it to make that make it viable? So Absolutely. I think it's something that um, every entity kind of deals with. Yes. And you've actually worked a decent amount with big corporations, you know, you know, probably through your research, but also as a consultant. So can you give our listeners a bit of a taste of um, some of the clients that you've worked with in the past? Sure. So, I, you know, I was, uh, I was a consultant for about a decade before I went into academia. And so I worked with 
consumer products companies, Hallmark, uh, these types of companies, uh, as well as some newer names at the time, uh, who had to figure out, again, these very big corporate questions of, you know, you take a company like Hallmark, and they used to be a business-oriented company, you know, that would, you know, sell cards wholesale, and then suddenly the internet came along, and they were suddenly a consumer company. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I bought a card. <laughs> well, then, there was that piece, too. Absolutely. It just upended their me. business. Uh, absolutely. So we had, you know, Hallmark. I worked for a long time with uh, retail banks as well, and then energy companies, pipeline companies, uh, energy storage companies. So I saw a wide range of businesses while I was a consultant. Uh, and, and that has helped me as a professor as well, because students come in with a wide range of experience, and you see these patterns across industries that some of which are very different in the new, you know, the devils in the details, and others of which, as a professor, you can help synthesize some of these broader patterns for them. You know, for me, I, I am struck because we work with professors all the time, many of whom do not have sort of that hands-on practical experience. Right. How does that affect the, or I guess on one hand, what motivated you to get, you know, a doctoral degree? Well, that, that was the interesting question I was going to do because that's, <laughs> you know, an interesting pivot. Sure. And then how does that, okay, you mentioned sort of teaching, but how does that affect your research interests and how you approach research? Absolutely. So in terms of why I chose to become a professor, that's sort of a circuitous path that you have to trace back to my teens and 20s, where originally I was a physics undergraduate and I was going to be a physicist. Okay. Uh, and uh, and then I decided for various reasons after uh, graduating, I went to Harvard. And after I graduated from Harvard, I thought I would work in consulting for a couple of years to learn about the real world. And I ended up loving it. But then by the time I came back to get my MBA, I realized that I actually missed academia a lot. And so this was a perfect synthesis of studying something that I loved, uh, but also being able to be a nerdy academic at the same time. So that was the that's the that, that was the choice to be a professor. Um, and then what was your second part? How do you sort of think about that in terms of your research? Ah, so yes. building on that practical experience. Yes. So I had a very pivotal hike with my husband once, where we went to we were in Utah. We were stuck in a a hailstorm somewhere and he was cursing me for sort of risking our lives together. <laughs> I don't know why. But uh, but but during that time uh, we were talking about, you know, I was sort of talking about this goes to our later conversation, but sort of what is my purpose, right? What am I trying to do with my career? And I made a vow to him and to myself uh, that I would only do research that my prior version of myself uh, as, you know, as a worker in, in the real world would actually find interesting and relevant and useful. Oh, so interesting. every single topic that I've done has been informed in some way by the decade that I was working before before I came. Well, I think that's a great segue. Now, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into some of that research that you, you're doing sure. guided by the sense <laughs> of purpose. Sure. So, um, so in terms of, do, do you want to talk first right now about the the purpose piece, or well, let's let's maybe start with sort of like some of the topics that you have researched in the past sure. that's sort of leading to talking about sure. corporate purpose. Sure. So actually, so I'll I'll actually go back even before I talk about that and and talk about a pivotal experience that I had in the workforce that is actually you can trace to. Nearly every paper. Was this before or after the pivotal hike? <laughs> this was the 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 the, the, <laughs> the pivotal work that brought me to the MBA that that brought me to the hike. Um, so I was uh, so the consulting company that I was at before graduate school. We uh, we acquired another company, and it was the kind of acquisition 
that on paper should have been perfect. It was a match made in heaven. We had certain skills. We had certain experience. We had a client book uh, that was that was valuable but lacking in other areas. This other this other company had perfectly complementary skills, client book, everything. You could just see the pitch deck of sort of why we should merge with each other, and 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 you know the the case was just very easy to make. Post merger was a complete disaster, oh. uh, and it was a disaster for a variety of reasons that I've sort of spent the last you know since then disentangling. But what ended up happening is that the best people from both companies ended up peeling away because the best people were the most unhappy, and that talent left. And what was left was sort of this shadow core of you know sort of shadow of what was what was before and that experience to me was very formative in saying what is it about a strategy that makes sense on paper that just fails in entirety for the human aspect of it afterwards and so that has that has really informed a lot of the research that I've done since then and so in terms of what what I do now and what I've done to date you can really in, sort of put it under the heading of corporate strategies that are messed up because of the human element. <laughs> and sort of the two mess-ups or, you know, I guess pieces that can either be mess-ups or good if they're done well, uh, one of them is what I loosely call social comparison, which is that you want to be in two businesses. Uh, those businesses ought to work very well together, but by bringing two sets of employees, two organizations together under one roof – you create all kinds of internal tensions that would not exist if those businesses were kept separately. So I have a set of papers that look at this in the context of, of compensation, for instance, where you look at pay comparisons. You were talking about pay equity in the context of, of gender issues uh, earlier, but pay equity can be in the context of just two different businesses. I'm a, you know, I'm a... Uh, you know, a cloud computing expert in, you know, a games division. I'm a cloud computing expert in a different division. We get paid completely differently because the industries are differently. But yet I look at you and I say, I'm doing the same thing. Why am I getting paid less? And I'm only comparing because we're inside one company. Mm. So these types of social comparisons that can really drive compensation policy and then drive firm strategies and affect the effect, you know, affect how 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 successful these companies' strategies actually are. That's so interesting because Cheryl, you I think you know, but um, you know, my husband's organization, the boards have officially voted to merge. merge. So these are two nonprofit entities, okay. but very very similar yep. challenges, right? And going into the merger process, you know, the negotiations and just sort of the discussions on the front end, they talked a lot about how yeah everything can work on paper, but at the end of the day, when things start to break down is when it's around people and culture, and I don't want to conflate culture with purpose yep. and like the you know that's sort of how they couched it and now the rubber meets the road i mean like they literally voted a couple of weeks ago so i'm very interested to see, see how, how these work. two organizations come together with these types of issues that you're describing in your research you're listening to dollars and change on business radio powered by the wharton school um, I'm Cheryl Kuhlman here with my co-host Nick Ashburn and we're talking to Claudine Gardenberg assistant professor of management at the Wharton School so I am struck by this notion of purpose. It kind of seems nebulous. I guess if you're a listener to Dollars and Change, you might think of like do-gooder, you know, mentality being p purpose versus like we make widgets and we're all aligned with that. And that's, you know, that's the purpose. So how do you think about purpose in, in your research? Yep. So Give me I, the operational definition. <laughs> so the operational definition of what, of how we think about purpose 
is the meaning of a firm's work beyond short-term measures of financial performance. And it's as simple and as general as that. And we do that very deliberately because, you know, to your point earlier, Wharton is not about advocacy, right? right. We are not about purpose has to be, you know, you know, access to clean water for, you know, 4 billion people. It doesn't have to be, you know, environmental causes. We are agnostic about what it is as long as it's meaning of the work beyond financial performance. And that's and that's very that's that's very deliberate on our on our on our on our side because we're saying, you know, who are, who are we to judge, right? You can be a second amendment firm who, you know, firmly believes in second amendment rights and that is a purpose that works for you, it works for your employees, it works for your customers, it may not work for some segment of the population, but that is not for, you know, for people to judge. And so it is it is it is it is from our perspective it is about getting away from the numbers and thinking about the reason for why you're doing what you're doing. So uh, go ahead. So how what did your research then indicate about purpose in yep. the agnostic kind of way? In the agnostic kind of way. So firstly what we find is that so we measure purpose by uh, very deliberately by employees' self-reported beliefs in the meaning of their job. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we do this is because other research has shown, not ours, but but uh, great research out of University of Chicago has shown that the proclaimed values that firms espouse on their websites, on their annual reports, are completely cheap talk. They're not mm-hmm. related to anything in either how the employees feel or financial performance or anything. So we say we cannot pay attention to what is coming out of corporate headquarters. We have to measure purpose as the aggregation of this sense of meaning that but, employees actually feel inside right. the Right, so it's how they're It is how purpose. employees, exactly. And what we say is firms that have effective purposes are firms where on aggregate the employees feel that they have high sense of meaning in their job. Mm-hmm. And that's how that's how we measure it. And what we find, the first thing we find is there's a huge variance in how strong companies feel or how, how, how strong employees feel across companies. Some companies, the employees on aggregate feel very low sense of meaning about their job. Uh, and then other companies, employees feel very, very high sense of meaning. And it roughly maps to how you might think of in terms of industries, right? So healthcare tends to have higher mm-hmm. sense of purpose. Uh, retail tends to have lower sense of purpose. But the important thing for your listeners to understand is that the variation within industries is much higher than the variation between. So you can be a retailer with a very high sense of purpose. You can be a healthcare company with a very low sense of purpose. So, so what you do is not your destiny. So I guess I'm thinking about this. One, I have one clarifying question and then I'll ask another one. So one, you, we started this conversation around you know how, how companies organize themselves. And I think on one hand, you can think about that as corporate structure you know, how they're incorporated and other things. But what I'm also interpreting from you is is it's not necessarily a first principles thing in the way that you have a purpose and you organize around it. It can also be a little more organic and bottom bottoms up in that regard. And it seems like it would almost have to be in some sense. That was my interpretation, but I'm sort of asking for understanding. Yes. <laughs> so that's, I mean... So we don't take a strong stance in where this arises from. And partly that's because, again, we're a very data-driven group and we haven't yet 
you know, really untangled that that knot that you bring up. The one piece of our research, though, that is related to what you saying that we find very strong results in is that purpose has to be felt lower in the ranks mm-hmm. for it to be effective. So the executives will always feel higher meaning in their job than the middle managers. The middle managers will feel higher meaning in their job than the hourly workers. That is fairly universal. But for purpose to affect your company's performance in any way, it has to be felt by the middle ranks of the organizations. And how that happens, we're not, you know, we haven't yet fully untangled, but that is that is a necessary condition. But you've uncovered that that is those are important components. Yes, yes. Okay. So I'm I'm imagining one of our listeners, so we might get a little more into the implementation side, which I get it may not mm-hmm. be exactly where your research lies, but I'm thinking about um, a company like Chick-fil-A, mm-hmm. I think. And mm-hmm. I, I may be misspeaking, but g- my general understanding is like they have a uh, a broad sort of purpose around customer service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really goes throughout the organization. Yeah. So that's one example. Another would be, you know, a dog food manufacturing company yep. that, you know, I guess healthy dog food could be one. I don't know, you know, I don't know what the purpose would be yep. there, but like yep. how could you break down those different types of philosophies for our listeners that are trying to untangle this before we sort of get into maybe how how might you do that in your own company? Yep. So again, you, you know, you could be so so it's funny that you bring up the dog food company because whenever I present this to academics, I open up with a poster. I was walking in an airport and I passed by a uh, an ad, and it was called Purposeful Dog Food, right? And I was like, purpose must be everywhere <laughs> exactly. if it's gotten to our dog food, I right? I guess so. I know my dog usually asks for purposeful dog food, so. <laughs> but you can imagine that that type of purpose is aimed towards customers, customers. right? People who want to make sure that, you know, they're, you know, getting sort of organically, you know, well-sourced food that they're, you know, that their, ta- you know, pets have become members of the family. But it's also sourced towards the, co- the employees or prospective employees as well, which is, you know, we want to work for a company that cares. It cares about its product. It cares about its company. So there's very strategic targeting of purpose, not just to external constituents, uh, you know, customers and, and investors, but also particularly to, to the employee base, which yeah. is what we care about. Yeah, and we about. absolutely see that with the students that we have when they're graduating and looking at jobs. They really are trying to find something with a yep. purpose. Right? Absolutely. So like you said, you're you're relatively agnostic as to what the purpose can or should be, but um, does your research show anything about you know what some interesting examples that have been successful? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you use yeah, I, yeah. I think fifty five hundred thousand survey responses, yeah. so it is a diverse group of companies as well as a diverse yeah. group of employees. So pur- purpose can take many different forms. So pro-social purpose is the obvious one that we've been talking mm-hmm. about, right? Which is, you know, purpose to some social end, uh, such as, you know, clean water or, um, you know, good, you know, employment in the supply chain. You can imagine all the different versions of pro-social purpose that are out there, but it need not be the only kind. So you can also think of a company like Apple, for instance. And Apple is a very purpose-driven company around design. Right. And their purpose is we will build the best, the most beautiful, the most life, you know, experience changing, you know, electronics that are out there that no company can ever match. And we will, you know, merge humanities and technology in a way that has never been done before. And, you know, you hear that and it's it's a very inspiring message for employees. It's incredibly effective um, from a consumer perspective and has nothing to do with pro-social aims, right? right? It is all about design. 
And, you know, there's there's other ones as well around, you know, we will, um, so, you know, some of the other categories. So we have pro-social, we have design, we can have, um, you know, community orientation, which is sort of a social orientation, but we invest in the community. We are of the community. We sort of are, you know, citizens of the community. So there's many different ways that purpose can manifest itself. Uh, and it really has to be authentic. Right. It really has to be a projection of what the management believes in, what the company is all about. It has to match to what the strategy of the company is. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Microsoft, for instance, and Microsoft is arguably a company that has undergone an unbelievable turnaround over the last decade since, uh, since Satya Nadella took over. And the first thing that he did when he took over is he reset the company's purpose. He said, look, you know, it used to be a PC on everybody's desktop. We got there. And now what? Right. And we lost our way. And so now, you know, what, what, who are we? What are we about? That was the very first thought process that he went through. And he said, look, we are about enabling businesses to be successful. And that was the purpose. And that purpose helped make it, it not only helped turn the company around, but it got guided their strategic decisions. It helped them make very, very painful decisions around which products to downplay, which products to play up, which you know, companies to divest, how to reorganize, and it was all about this new purpose. And that was the tool that he used to to, to guide them out of, you know, out of their the the, the hole that they'd fallen yeah. into. And I know your research and your survey didn't uh, go to this point, but how is it then that you drive that kind of purpose down to the lowest employees? Because you'd mentioned how important yep. it is yep. to have them feel it as well. So a big part of it that that part of our research does speak to is that purpose cannot just be about meaning. It cannot just be about these espoused values. There's a component of purpose called clarity that we find that has to go hand in hand. And what clarity is, is that employees need to understand how their actions directly uh, link to what the aims and the goals of the companies are, right? And so it has to be not just we're about the world's greatest dog food, but that what I am doing will actually enable that purpose to be. And without that, there's no, there's no, you know, purpose is not meaningful in any sort of real strategic or performance sense. And so f the lessons for managers and companies is you need to first, you need to understand, you need to know that purpose is credibly felt inside your organization and that it is done that way by employees really understanding how is it that what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis, how does that map to what the company is all about. And that's something that, you know, an entrepreneur can be thinking about as well as somebody with their own small business. It doesn't have to be a large corporation, but it's something that you can really actively try to make sure that your purpose for the company is being felt by everybody else. I mean, you can argue this is one of the biggest roles of managers, mm -hmm. right, which is I have to understand where we're going and then I have to make sure that everybody else understands what their role in this is all about. And so if you think about... Um you, you mentioned performance. And so I guess that's two levels. One is, I think your research looks at financial performance of, on some measures. And then also, how are you measuring purpose sort of at the more micro level? Like what, what is an indicator of purpose of, of it trickling down across all mm -hmm. of those different levels that then you sort of control for to understand performance? So we do, so, so in our first study, we did create this measure of purpose. And we did it by Actual, so we have a we have a we use a survey that's half a million survey uh, half a million employees around uh, across. Oh geez, I think about five hundred companies, and we use what individual people are reporting in terms of their perceptions of the meaning of their job, 
to create these measures of corporate purpose. And then we relate that to performance. And, and as you mentioned, what we find is that, in fact, if you if companies that have high purpose and clarity in their middle ranks, not their executive ranks and, you know, not below, but in their middle ranks, those companies experience systematically higher counting returns and stock returns. So companies in the highest quintile, you know, the highest 20 percent, uh, outperform the market by about 7% a year, which is just an unbelievable amount. Yeah, 7% it's is significant. Huge. Significant. It's on par with the best gov- you know, the, the, the best governed companies, the companies with the most effective R&D strategies, et cetera. So, so that's, how we, that's how we measure that. Um, and then in terms of uh, other, other things that we've done with the data, so we, you know, we, we're really interested in relating this to firm strategy. So micro studies are better, you know, sort of lent in sort of more smaller types of settings than than what we have been focused on. We're interested in purpose at the strategic corporate level and, and understanding it there. So the other pieces that we've looked at is we've asked which companies have higher purpose and lower purpose. And uh, and what we found there is some very interesting results, uh, one of which is that private companies that are not owned by, uh, by private equity firms but are just your your vanilla private companies have a much higher sense of purpose than either publicly traded companies or private equity-owned firms. And we go through a bunch of explanations and, and um, uh, uh, we sort of untangle why that is uh, in a second set of research. And then we also look at uh, going to your next discussion on you know women's soccer, uh, differences in felt purpose by, by race and, and gender. And what we find is that there's there's actually large differences uh, across these across these demographic groups. Well, this has been um, really applicable research, and and we're delighted to have had you out. This is Dollars and Change. Like us, like us on Facebook, facebook.com/slash/SiriusXMBusinessRadio, and follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. This is Business Radio. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.